Welcome, I'm your host, Conrad Chua. Before we get started, uh, if you're new, new to the show, you can put questions in the comments field, whether you're watching us on LinkedIn, YouTube, or Facebook. And you can start by writing down where in the world you're watching this from today. And if you're a returning viewer, you'll notice the new branding. So we did a very scientific survey on LinkedIn, and we've now chosen to rebrand this to the balance sheet. The show started with a very strong careers focus. We'll continue to have some careers content. But you, the audience, have shown that you want to uh, rise above the noise of everyday news and learn about the most important business issues of today. So we're now at the balance sheet. On to today's show, we've seen over the last few years, countries all over the world try to encourage more competition in different parts of banking, whether that's commercial banking or retail. And they put in place regulatory frameworks to allow these challenger banks to emerge and challenge incumbents. So today we'll look at how, how has that gone? Our first guest is Tim Harvey Samuel, who is the bursar of Trinity Hall College here in Cambridge, otherwise known as the CFO of the whole place. He's a 20-year veteran of capital markets, and he's also a, um, he works very closely with a business bank here in the UK. So thank you very much, Tim, for joining us. Thank you, comrade. Pleasure to be here. We also have Dixon Ma, who was an MBA student here many years ago, and he's now the Chief Marketing Officer of Lenovo PCCW Solutions in Hong Kong. Before that, he worked in business development for Alipay Hong Kong and Livy Bank, another virtual bank there. So welcome, Dixon. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't we get started with uh, you, Tim, in giving a bit of giving us a context into why, at least in the UK, the government wanted challenger banks. Sure. Um, thanks, Conrad. So um, the roots of this really go back to two things. Uh, first, uh, like so much, is the global financial crisis. And the second is the regulatory, uh, the, the Basel regulatory framework. Um, and one of the conclusions coming coming out of the financial crisis which which did affect the uk banking system you know particularly badly uh was um the need to stimulate and diversify the provision of credit to small businesses the uk is quite a consolidate historically quite a consolidated uh banking environment and uh so the bank of england very specifically designed regulation a to limit frankly um the the dominance of the clearing banks and b to stimulate competition and the, the limiting took the form of those banks that have received government support were mandated uh, to carve out certain parts of their network uh, as if you like sort of embryonic challenger banks um and they made it um easier uh to build a new business uh, and to enter that specific business. The, the, the Basel III aspect really relates to the, the weightings uh, that small business lending uh, received. And that's, that's a 10 year plus discussion. That, that, that is still a very dynamic area of debate today. Um, but the way, that it, the way that it worked 
was really such that for very large banks in the UK, uh, residential mortgages were great business. Uh, retail current accounts were pretty good business. Corporate lending was great business and investment banking, you know, and underwriting, if you got it right, was great business. But small business lending um, was less attractive for them than those other business areas because of the capital weightings uh, that it received. Um, and so they wanted to stimulate the provision of, of, of small businesses. So a number of firms um, took them up on this challenge and, and set up a bank. And uh, at Trinity Hall, uh, which is which is where I am today, uh, the Bursa, we, my predecessor, who was also an ex-banker, sensed an opportunity, um, talked about it with the, the local, the pension fund of the local authority here, Cambridgeshire County Council Pension Fund, and together they seeded uh, a bank, bought a license, put together a business plan, put together a management team and obtain after passing the regulatory uh, clearances, obviously, which were uh, which were which were pretty arduous, uh, obtained a license from the Bank of England. And so that's the so the bank was born in June 2012. That is Absolutely fascinating. I know Cambridge has given birth to many great revolutionary ideas, but I, I never knew it gave birth to a bank. Yeah, well, there you, there you <laughs> go. And actually, this was, this was intended not to be a revolutionary idea. This was actually intended to be a return to the way that all business banking used to take place in the UK. So it's a, it's a very interesting point, Conrad, in that it was um, the edge. And I think we'll, we'll go on to talk about this later. The edge was really the granularity and the specificity of credit judgments. Um, and and uh, it was felt that a more nimble operator could have an edge there at a time where big banks were doing that increasingly by, frankly, by computer uh, for, uh, for small business lending and moving further away from the customer. So we felt if we could be closer to the customer and with more granularity of credit judgments, that might give us an edge. So it was, it was back to the traditional sense of, of small business lending. Yeah. So we'll come back to you, Tim, to find out how do you start a bank from, from, from a blank piece of paper. But Dixon, what was the experience in Hong Kong? Were, were there a lot of interest into you know, coming into a, a new sector, perhaps? Hmm. I think for um, fintechs in Hong Kong, I think uh, since the middle of 2000, um, maybe 2015, there was an uptick and a lot of interest in fintechs in Hong Kong. And um, the regimes and the regulatory at that time were encouraging a lot of investments uh, with Alipay being one of them. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of the founding team of Alipay Hong Kong. And uh, it was backed by Ant Financials in China and also CK Hutchison, the conglomerates in, uh, based in Hong Kong. So we started um, in 2018 um, with the vision of creating an e-payment uh, lifestyle super app, which utilizes QR code payments that covers basically everything from your online to offline payments, um, your transportation payments, uh, bill payments, and even uh, wealth management solutions. So what was the, uh, was this, so was it because technology had evolved to the point where now all these transactions were 
possible with either your smartphone or card that really gave gave rise to this market opportunity? Um, I think to be honest, um, interestingly enough, um, Hong Kong was actually one of the leading market for contactless payment uh, back in the 2000s. And um, Hong Kong uh, has an Octopus Card, which is the predecessors of Oyster Card in England. And instead of just um, applying it on um, mobility and transportation usage, uh, Hong Kong actually expanded it towards, um, you know, a convenience store in the very beginning to, um, you may use the Octopus Card to enter premises. They can check your identification with the um, NFC card. So that was the beginning of, um, I would say, um, FinTech or even um, the game changer of the payment landscape in Hong Kong. And I think since then, um, there was a quite a number of um, initiatives trying to replicate um, or even compete with the Octopus, with Alipay being one of them. Yeah, and I guess one of the big advantages of Alipay is that it's mobile first, right? It was born in, from a mobile environment, whereas Octopus, the Octopus car was physical and trying to use that online would have been a very difficult thing to do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll, we'll come back to you, Tim, later, uh, right after we sh- see where some of our viewers are from. So just a shout out. We've got Arifoth in London. Um, someone's viewing from Qatar. Uh, Ellis in Beijing. Dusan's in Belgrade. Mohammed is always here in the UK with Canterbury. Uh, Gianni is, Johnny is um, in Zurich in the office of a major bank. Ooh. Uh, Alicia's here in London, Neil, New York, Maria from Sao Paulo, Sahil in Mumbai, uh, someone else, Tanmay from India, Aaron, who's been watching this every week in Surrey, so thank you very much. And um, just a reminder that uh, if you've got any questions, please put them in the chat or comments. So, Tim, if I come back to you, you... You had the chance, or your predecessor had the chance, to create a bank from scratch. And why is it that uh, he, your predecessor, thought the edge was going to come from that human interaction versus a very rigorous, data rigorous, algorithmic approach? Um, I think it, it, it really comes back to the customer type and the customer service. I think if you're, you know, we were very explicit about being focused on small business lending, you know, from the start, mostly these are family owned businesses um, with a reasonable size, you know, size range. Um, But uh, our sense was that these are people who are going to value, you know, who build their businesses through successfully developing personal relationships. Um, why should the provision of banking services to them <clears throat> be necessarily less personal than the way in which they've built their business? Um, and if you look at, uh, so so there are some quite interesting models in the Scandinavian countries around this, you know, uh, Svenska Handels Bank and is a very interesting bank um, where they have a very uh, autonomous sort of branch manager uh, type system and the branch manager owns really owns the um 
the responsibility for the for the activities of his branch and that's been a highly successful uh, system and you saw very interestingly in you know shortly after the crisis you actually saw Svenska Handelsbank and expanding in market towns around Britain with economies with you know prosperous local business um activity of 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 the type where uh, where Cambridge and counties uh, would also now now operate so that judgment that that there was an edge in personal banking supported by modern technology but where the relation where you know where the customer contact was not technology driven it was human driven that was a good judgment and i would say history has the succeeding decade has vindicated uh that judgment um and i think um but but obviously at the time you don't know that you're right you know we were lucky we had very strong partners uh the college governing body was very supportive given that this is quite an unusual investment for a cambridge college uh to make um um and so as with every new venture there was there were a host of uncertainties but the basic plan uh, the basic intuition that the customer base wanted a service that they weren't getting uh from from the large banks which which were in rehab after the crisis that was correct mm. in, and dixon for for your experience you you do more like retail you know invest, uh, banking so it's mostly individuals did you see that uh, what was the market need that these individuals had was it just faster credit approvals easier ways to shop online what was that in hong kong um thanks i think from the um top end of the value chain uh, everyone it's looking for a product that is e- easier to sign up so the um kyc you know period must be seamless and and um very fast fast track approval and for the customer need i think it's mainly driven by uh, consumer incentives um unfortunately in hong kong i think the uh, incumbent markets was dominated by um, a lot of players so from credit cards to um even um nfc payments so to be honest there wasn't really an unfulfilled need perhaps in compared with a lot of unbanked areas hong kong is one of the places in the world where you have one of the highest credit card penetrations so people on average has four or five credit cards um the sort of unmet need if i may say was previously before e-payments was perhaps a lack of an interface that really tracks your user payment journey so uh for your everyday spending habits um there wasn't much credit analysis so i think it sort of resonates with what tim said um if you have some data and you gain some traction perhaps that's a base for the credit history building for the future so um and um i think in 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 hong kong even though we're still starting to build the sort of um, offline online uh, credit history um credit database it's starting to gain some more traction these days so this data uh, of people being of people spending habits and transaction history was something that let's say Alipay or other banks really valued so that they could give make give them better data to make um, lending decisions later on and i guess on the consumer side that means they build that credit history is that right 
Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, yeah. So, I you you mentioned how Hong Kong is such a crowded market, you know, with credit cards, banks, etc. So, how have these new fintech companies like Alipay and Livy Bank and others? How have they um, uh, fared in the last couple of years? Mm. I think um, since the um, COVID pandemic and also the you know, crypto crunch, it has not been easy. Um, to be honest, for a lot of fintech players in Hong Kong or in, in Asia in general, it tries to replicate the model of, um, you know, customer acquisition. And then you try to predict a uh, certain percentage that you can monetize from them. And that's how you get a probably high valuation back in the days. But so far since the um, crypto crunch, valuation has not been easy. So for all these fintech players, those who are still standing, I think um, everyone that's trying to um, emerge from the competition with a solid commercial model. So now it's not just validating based on the number of users that or potential monetization you might possibly have. So you need to have a very solid commercial model and also play within the rule books and um, play within the regimes at the same time. So it has not been easy. Yeah, very important to pay, play within the rules. Uh, but Tim, I got this comment from uh, Aaron, who says, you know, there's all who talks about, let's say, micro organizations. So I guess it's micro lending, micro banks. Is this something which challenger banks were supposed to go into and have they? Uh, not really in the UK, but challenger banks is is quite a generic term now. There's a very large spread of challenger banks. So it's, it's become, I suppose, a bit like the term hedge fund in that it's a sort of generic term which describes rather a wide scope of, of quite different businesses. Um, I, I do think that uh, in the first instance, and this dates back to when I was still a banker, um, but I think in the first instance, post-crisis, the real aim of the Bank of England was to support what it would call small business lending. And that that I think, you know, you could frame it as micro organizations, but it's in reality, it's probably one or two tiers up from that in the in, 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 in the size scale. Um, but also, I think there was a strand around retail lending and bringing a bit more competition for current accounts in and that spawned a number of challenger banks which are also challenger banks but which have activities that are quite different from us um and and you know i i think within that sphere there is probably a line of business which corresponds more closely to you know in inverted commas micro uh, micro organizations um, in our case at Cambridge and Counties, we're quite a small bank and uh, balance, uh, balance sheet's now a billion, but obviously that's after several years of growth. Um, we were pretty focused in terms of our target market because I think the risk is uh, having too many target markets if you're a small bank and, and losing that customer focus. But I think there are challenger banks that, that in the UK that have supported micro-organizations largely as part of their retail activity. And 
obviously there are others that are not banks that have tried to get into this lending side of things, right? So people like uh, Funding Circle, peer-to-peer lending. Um, I want to ask you, Tim, what do you, what's your take on these, these modes of uh, lending that have looked at just one part sliver of a traditional bank? And then I'll ask Dixon whether that's popular in, the, in, in Hong Kong and Asia as well. But first, Tim. So I certainly think it's had a moment of popularity. I wonder how popular, I wonder if that moment has passed, candidly. Um, I think that um, provision of credit, you know, provision of credit in the sort of challenger bank area as far as we can measure it, uh, has been growing as a proportion of whole for challenger banks. Um, I don't, I think after initial period of explosive growth, I'm not sure that those, uh, those the very specific alternative channel uh, channels that you mentioned have, have grown so rapidly. Uh, again, quite a, quite a lot of activity there that you'd probably classify as as more retail in, in, in a way. Um, and um, they're not competitors. They're not competitors of ours. They're not competitors of the people with whom we compete. Um, so uh, so in the UK specifically, you know, I'd say not, not so much, actually. And Dixon, in Hong Kong and Asia, is this sort of peer-to-peer lending uh, quite popular? Um, I think not so much, to be honest. Um, I think peer-to-peer lending um, in Hong Kong, we still have a very strict sort of um, um, regime for for lending facilities. So it's now strictly um, granted to the incumbent banks, uh, also virtual banks and small lenders. But for P2P lending, it is still unregulated and it's not encouraged in, in, in Hong Kong and Asia. I think um, the governments in Asia or China, Hong Kong, they're trying to have a more measured control approach on P2P lending. Yeah, because uh, at least in the UK, it's something like, I think it's funding circle kind of blew up in a way when uh, some of their loans, just the, 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 the control of non-performing loans sort of blew up. Um, but maybe at this point, we could talk about some of the challenges that challenger banks are facing at the moment. How well have they done? Uh, who have done well out of this? So, um, Tim, in the UK context, obviously, your, your bank is doing well. But looking at the entire landscape, has the UK's ex- government's experiment with challenger banks worked? Yeah. Uh, yes. So I think it's worked. I think it's working. And you can see that in a... Um, a rising proportion of aggregate small business lending, which happens to be what I track, comes from our neck of the woods. So collectively, um, we are we're growing as a subsector. Um, and the funny, you know, when that happens and when you're in a business, it's quite amusing sometimes to look at each individual competitor's bro- growth projections, aggregate them, and see if they they will usually aggregate to a completely unrealistic assessment of what the growth projections for the entire industry will be. And that that sort of tells you that um, 
um, that maybe a few people are being a little bit too optimistic. Um, and I think a few people probably are being too optimistic, particularly in the economic environment we currently face. But the proportion of a whole of the whole has been rising. So, yes, it's worked. The challenges are, I, I would say, twofold, uh, twofold principally. Um, there's a there's a sort of regulatory stroke economic challenge, which is um, around how do you own uh, how do you earn a decent return on your capital in these businesses? It's a highly you know the Bank of England definitely set out to stimulate competition, so it made it quite straightforward, uh, difficult, but but you know not impossible to get a license, and that's as it should be. However. Um, once you've got the license, the regulatory regime is very, very um, firm around capital ratios, how much capital you need to hold. It's very, very firm around have you got the credit grading systems to know what's in your book, to stress test what's in your book and to be able to provide adequately for that. And um, if you assume that the challenger banking institutions are going to have a somewhat higher cost of funds than a large clearing bank, then, um, you know, the question is, what's a suitable return on equity? What's the return on equity that rewards shareholders appropriately and maybe even attracts new competitors to join uh, to join the business? And I think, you know, 10 years in um, with the fast evolving regulatory environment, that's still a question that isn't fully answered. I mean, we're very happy with our bank. Uh, we haven't taken a dividend yet from our bank because we like reinvesting the profits and compounding, you know, compounding the returns in that way. And that gives the bank the fuel to to continue to grow from organically, organically generated capital. So that's that's working very well for us. Um, so, so I think that's a sort of regulatory stroke economic challenge. And then I think there's a customer challenge because you know, we're not going to have the same marketing budgets as, as the big banks. Um, we are new name, you know, we're, we're by definition on the whole new names on the block. We, you know, the customer recognition may not be be there. And so what we what we try to do is differentiate ourselves through service. So that's uh, the human, the human voice, the individual credit judgment, the turn, the ability to process and turn around loan requests quickly uh, and then service, you know, service through the life of the loan. So being um, responsive to the customer um, and using technology to uh, facilitate that, but not to um, uh, not to become the voice of the firm to the customer. So so I think those are there's a there's a regulatory challenge and there's a um, there's a customer challenge. So far, enough of us seem to have been able to thread that needle to create a thriving subsector. But it will continue to evolve because, um, you know, we've got Basel 3.1 coming down at us, coming down the track. That contains the draft provisions of that contain some quite stiff uh, regulatory aspects around um, small business lending. And we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to work through that. It doesn't scare us, but, you know, that's just a new challenge 
of the regulatory type that we'll have to go through. So I think those are the two challenges, Conrad. I, I thought it was interesting you mentioned it's regulatory, the customer, but you didn't mention uh, any challenge from the incumbents. So is it the case that the bigger banks still don't see this as a viable market for them? Viable is quite a strong word. Um, I think it's, but, but I mean, certainly not mentioning it was deliberate. I go back to what I was talking about sort of about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes ago. The way the regulations work for the big banks creates strong incentives for them, in, certainly in the UK, but I think this is internationally broadly relevant. You know, resident, you know, aspects of the retail business around current accounts, residential mortgages, obviously fee earning services, very, very attractive. Corporate, big corporate lending and investment banking, if you can manage the risks, very, very attractive. Uh, the, re- the, the capital weightings and the regulatory hurdles around small business lending, you know, not so much. So we see them and they sort of dip in and dip out, I'd say a little bit. Um, and they are a clear and present danger all the time. Um, but the competition within the challenger banks and amongst the challenger banks is the principal competitive driver of behavior in our subsector. And Dixon, I, you, again, you mentioned how crowded the, the banking sector or financial sector mm. is in Hong Kong. So have the bigger bank, the big banks, I'm thinking like HSBC and all, had they taken on... Uh, new capabilities to compete against Alipay or Livy Bank? Hmm. I think the incumbent players have most certainly responded in uh, two different ways. I think when um, um, Conrad mentioned HSBC, it's also a good example because HSBC, when uh, the virtual banking license were open for application, HSBC deliberately did not apply because they thought it was easy for them to create a digital arm for um, P2P payments and also for um, offline payment, and which they did. They've created an app called uh, HSBC Pay Me, and it just rivals the um, competences of Alipay and also other smaller e-payment uh, arms. And I think for a lot of the incumbent banks, which took the other side of the coins, um, actually when the virtual banking license were open for application, out of eight of the successful applicants and now who are operating virtual banks, five of them have, uh, they are from the major banks. So Standard Chartered, Bank of China's, all the big boys joined it, the um, sort of um, the, 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 the trend and also joined it, the, the, the competition in the virtual bank aspect. And um, I think just going back to what Tim uh, mentioned earlier, and I think both the challenger banks and the incumbent banks, they face a similar regulatory challenge because in a way, um, the way the virtual banks are governed in Hong Kong, they face uh, similar AML requirements as the uh, traditional banks. They also uh, need to report and have the same compliance setup. So from the backbone of it, they are on the level playing field, but um, from and user acquisition sites, the traditional banks already start off with um, 
let's say out of 7 billion people in Hong Kong, um, they have uh, three or 4 million user base already. So the challenger banks need to spend a lot on user acquisition while sort of um, generating a reasonable returns to satisfy the shareholders, which unfortunately, most of the shareholders are traditional bank shareholders. They wouldn't have the tolerance of seeing the uh, negative return in the first few years. So in that way, I think the challenger banks and the virtual banks, they operate in a very um, interesting aspect. Um, the line, uh, the, the room for error, it's actually very thin for them. I, I thought it was really interesting what you said that uh, all the incumbent banks thought that it'd be easy to set up something to compete against Alipay because uh, in the business school, we always talk about organizational culture being a real, both a barrier, but also could be a real uh, source of differentiation. And the idea in terms of this, uh, in terms of disruption, it's always been that if you're an incumbent, it's not so mm. easy to take on the organizational culture of someone like Alipay that came from the tech that came from a tech side, for example. Um, right. But I guess, Tim, I wanted to ask your, your views. Is it setting aside the regulatory aspects, but thinking back into your experience in capital markets, is it organizationally easy for a well-established financial institution to come up with a digital arm to compete against, let's say, a tech firm? I mean, no, is the short answer. Um, I mean, uh, I, 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 something tells me that Dixon will will have far more expertise on this on this than I do. I know enough about the industry to know that that is not easy because of the sort of dead hand of legacy systems, um, if you know what I mean. So, so I think that's very problematic. H however, conversely. Uh, within the UK Challenger Bank, that there is, it, it's great that you get to start with a clean slate on technology. And I think some, you know, um, some Challenger Banks, particularly in the retail space, are doing a, a really nice job on reinventing, uh, reinventing how the retail customer interfaces with finance and with banking. And, and you can only do that with a clean slate on technology. Uh, what we find in the business area in these in the business banking area is um a lot of people still like a, a, a you know a human face uh, or a human voice at the end of the phone and um and you know that, that it's important to have the technology behind that that that's that's helping you make good decisions and it's important to have the technology that eases the customer interface wherever you can but you know, when you've got, you know, we, 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 we've got, you know, whatever, several hundred customers, we don't have several million customers. Um, and so being able to service those customers uh, appropriately is, is, is really, really important. But I, I think, uh, Dixon, you're going to be far more expert in this than me, I'm sure. Not at all. <laughs> um, perhaps I can also share some of the observations I, I had in, in the fintech area. Um, I think for a lot of the incumbent banks, setting up a digital arm has been a disruptive experience, both internally and externally. Um, just from the organization setup, 
um, now you have uh, two different teams doing entirely different things and it has not been easy and um, for a lot of the bankers I, I think Tim is one of the rare breed that made a perfect transition to the digital side but uh, just from my observation experience uh, when you have all these legacy systems as Tim correctly points out and also the traditional banking mindset it, it's not exactly easy to turn into a digital person overnight and uh, sometimes when uh, traditional banks they try to go digital they try to place too much importance on the user experience which it's hugely important in the digital side but unfortunately they probably oversee the commercial aspect of it and also um, for the internal sort of uh, teams to adapt a digital uh, mindset, it is quite a steep learning curve. So when a lot of the um, fintechs uh, set up in Hong Kong, they actually try to attract talents from abroad, from um, from China, from, from Asia, who had probably more uh, relevant experience in the digital side. So you probably need a little bit of uh, both worlds to flare for a traditional bank in, in setting up digital arm, so it's not easy. Great. We can, we've got a couple of two questions, which I think probably I can con we can condense to one. So Marina talks about how difficult it is to, uh, for, to, to open a bank account sometimes and how maybe it's these regulations that uh, squash innovation and kills a lot of uh, interesting companies before they can even get off the ground. Uh, Leon feels that the major inhibitor of innovation is the know your customer and anti-money laundering regulations. Um, Tim, maybe we start with you. Do you feel that it's a lot of these heavy-handed regulations at play that kill off innovation? Uh, it can be. Uh, it can be. I mean, I think that... Um, I think that that there is no question that the the um, the regulations uh, around customer processing in the UK and the EU are have have got vastly um, heavier uh, in recent years, and it's a it's a huge part of our board agenda whenever we meet. Um, and um, but but. In a way, the regulatory obligations, most of which in this area have been developed on a global, uh, certainly a very international level. Um, you know, one of one of the defining um, uh, traits that I've noticed in the last uh, seven or eight years is how much more uh, regulators share with each other in terms of common common standards and how they keep raising the bar, particularly in respect of, um, of, of AML and customer onboarding. Um, you know, that probably, I think, I'm not sure it constrains product innovation. It does constrain customer growth. Um, but it's, it is an area where banks in the past have really struggled. And so I, I don't necessarily, I, you know, I 
we, we have to work with the regulatory environment we have to work with in, in, in our bank and we do our best to maintain customer service levels um, and improve them uh, around that. I can understand customer frustrations uh, around the process. I really can. And, you know, uh, the last uh, at the last board meeting, we have a bit of time out where we go down to the, um, you know, down to the business units for an hour or two and spend some time with the people there. And and I happened to to spend a bit of time on the desk that is dealing with customer approvals and um, the sheer volume of uh, checks that they have to process in order to onboard customers in compliance with the regulations um, astonished me, actually. And I left full of respect for full of respect for them uh, for doing the job they do in the way they do it. But but those are those are imposed on us by the regulator and generally they're international or global. I can understand customer frustration. I really can. And I think this is coming through in um, uh, coming through in the comments. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that kills product innovation, um, I'm not so convinced. There's a pretty dynamic fintech environment in the UK um and and i think that ultimate i think there is a risk um that you get tech investors investing in things that are actually banks and there are going to be some quite interesting return um uh implications for that because the types of return that the regulator will basically allow you to earn on the equity of a banking institution of wildly different, obviously, than successful uh, technology entrepreneurs, you know, on the West Coast or, or, or the Nordics or, or wherever can generate on, on their investments. So um, I think it's always important to remember what, what you are. Are you a tech company or are you a bank? Um, hmm. If you're a bank, your marketing and your PR may say that you're a tech company, but that's actually not true. You're a bank. Hmm. And I'm a senior treasurer for a student club here in Cambridge, and I can tell you that uh, having to go to the bank every year to verify identity is crazy. Um, we'll take one last question, maybe first Dixon and then Tim. So Dan uh, spends much of his time trying to navigate these regulations for fintech clients. And it's such a complex maze, especially when one looks at it globally. So Dixon, first, do you feel that you know, this is a source of great frustration on fintechs where they are used to coming from the technologies, maybe they come from a technology world where they're used to scaling and going across borders so easily, right? And now they've got to be faced with all these different uh, regulations, sometimes local, sometimes regional. Did you did you get that sense working in, in Hong Kong? Um, I think even though the regulators are trying to keep up with the speed and also the scale of fintech developments, most definitely the regime, it's having a hard time of playing uh, catch-up game. So I think the frustration apart from the regime, actually, I would like to go back to the previous question. It's not just the regulators who are holding back the sort of um, 
scalability and, and the um, and the rise of the metric rise of the fintechs in the way the users and the consumers are also part of the reason. Uh, I'll take Hong Kong as an example. I think the data in Hong Kong are still sitting in very silo islands. So um, in, in generally, it takes a lot for users to share his or her own data. And there isn't one um, common sort of um, credit history data pool. But uh, whereas in China, for example, in, in Alipay in, in China, it has its own uh, credit scoring system. So it's called Sesame Credit and it measures your behavior. For example, if you um, rent a bicycle from, the, from, from, from an area and then you return it in time, you get, you get additional bonus for your credit score. And uh, if you use Alipay for uh, e-commerce purchases and you pay on time and then delivers on time, obviously there's also a plus. So those sort of credit uh, data and also data sharing um, create meaningful customer profile. And uh, banks in return or fintechs can carve out differentiation on the whole user experience and ultimately to uh, borrowing Tim's word, you have different credit description for, for lending. So I think that's also takes a customer mindset change to prompt this sort of fintech development. Obviously, I'm not saying, you know, the China sort of model of data sharing is the best, but in the way, I, know, I mean, as uh, consumer and users, it probably takes some time for us to see the true value of sharing the data and what kind of data we are willing to share uh, to our own benefit. I, I'll give the final word to you, Tim, in terms of, do you think that, you know, you see fintech companies having uh, a positive influence on regulators and thinking actually there are certain things that, we, that regulators can allow to give more choice to consumers? Um, I, see, I see technological improvements doing that. Um, I don't necessarily, and I think fintech is obviously an important part of that. Um, as you will have gathered Conrad from my previous answer uh, I'm quite I'm quite wary about that um, that dividing line between fintech and banks simply because I see quite a few of our competition who I absolutely know are banks positioning themselves as fintechs and um, and I think sound use of technology, to understand our business better and to understand our customers better is absolutely going to be constructive vis-a-vis -vis the regulator. And I think that's true whether you're a bank or a fintech. So you know, we are big, big, despite what I've said about being a human face, we are big, big believers in technology. The use of technology over the decade of our existence has um vastly improved our ability to understand our customers and our book and i think that's you know that's that's got to be that's got to be a, a good thing that's very prudent words from you and uh, your, your 20 years of experience in banking really came through there so thank you so much uh tim and dixon for sharing your experiences and your insights into the world of challenger banks for our viewers thank you for joining us our next episode is actually in two weeks' time, on the 24th of March, uh, at a slightly later time, 2.45. But we'll have three people who will talk a lot about, will talk about minority-owned businesses, specifically 
uh, what are the challenges that they face in terms of accessing capital, but also what lessons minority-owned businesses can have to, say, challenge the prevailing uh, ideas that we teach in business schools. Is there a better way to do business than the whole Silicon Valley capitalist model? So once again, thank you so much, Tim and Dixon. And I hope that uh, our viewers will, we will, will see you in two weeks' time. Thank you so much.